the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. are lame and need of healing because we're all dying of the same disorder and it's called sin and Jesus made a way through the cross so that we might have relationship with him and be able to feast at the table with the king of the universe forever and ever Jesus says there's a great banquet you need to come and you need to invite as many people as possible to come with you because that's the glorious truth of eternity All of us suffer from a spiritual, terminal illness. We're born with it, and it'll spread its destruction through every part of our lives if left unchecked. This cancer of the soul is known as sin. Today, as Pastor Gary continues our study in the book of Luke, he'll remind us that in spite of that sinful nature, God loves us and has loved us since before we were born. He invites every one of us into the work of redemption that Christ started on the cross. And as the redeemed, it's our privilege to bring others to His healing touch. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke chapter 14 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he uses this dinner scene at the house of this Pharisee to do a couple of things. First, he's going to heal this guy who has this affliction, this dropsy. So that's done. Now he's going to use the dinner scene as an occasion to teach a principle, and the principle is about pride and humility. And he says, look, when you go to a dinner party, Don't just automatically take the best seat, the seat of honor. And the seat of honor in Jesus' day was right up next to the host. And typically it still is today. You go to some, you know, main event and there's some dignitary and you're invited as a guest. And if you're important, you'll be put next to the dignitary. But if you're not, you'll kind of be put at the end of the table. Well, in these days, they didn't have the place markers. So people would just automatically get there and then take the highest uh, seats because they wanted to honor themselves. Jesus says, you know, it's kind of humiliating. If you take the high seat and then somebody comes... And, and the dinner guest, the dinner host, says, no, 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 this guy's more important than you, and makes you get up, you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be embarrassed. And then you have to walk, and everybody's going to be looking at you as you walk to the end of the table. So why not, Jesus says, why not start at the end of the table, and then when the dinner starts, let the dinner host move you up to the head of the table. Isn't that a lot better than if you're embarrassed because you get kicked out of the seat of honor? And Jesus says then, in this way, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
The theme of pride versus humility is all through the Bible. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about pride and humility. I've quoted this many times, but it's a good thing to remember. John Calvin once said that pride is the pregnant mother of all sins because pride, so much of our sinful behavior is launched from the pad of pride. So much about what we get ourselves in trouble concerning has to do with pride and haughtiness and arrogance. And the Bible warns about it. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Galatians 6, 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In James 4, 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we need to always be pursuing humility We need to always be praying against pride, examining our own hearts. Is there any pride? Is there any arrogance, Lord? Please show me, because I don't want to be a person of pride or arrogance. And pray for humility. And just when you think that you have humility, don't ever tell anybody, because then you've got to start all over. (laughs) Think about it. Verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so will be repaid. He says, says, that's nice. He's not saying, don't ever do it. He's giving here an analogy. He says, in verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So now he's, he's going to use this statement here is basically saying, okay, look, don't just always invite family members and neighbors and people that you know well. Invite some people you don't know. Invite the kind of the outcasts, if you will. Invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the poor, the blind, and then you'll be blessed. They may not ever be able to thank you, repay you, have you over to their house for dinner. But he says, do this because it honors the Lord and you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. But he's going to use that to teach now a greater picture about the banquet in heaven. And he goes, he moves into this parable here in verse 15. I want you to see this with me. It's subtitled in my Bible, the parable of the great banquet. So right on the heels of that, he says this in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now now that guy, whoever he was, it was true. In Revelation, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the bride makes herself ready. We are the bride, the church, and there's going to be this ultimate feast, this consummation, if you will, of the marriage between uh, the bride, the church, and the groom, Jesus, and the wedding supper of the Lamb, and there's going to be a great banquet. And there's going to be eternity after this, and we're going to be in fellowship and at the banquet table of the Lord for and ever and ever. And so this guy's asking this question. He knows something about the future. He knows something about this great banquet. And so Jesus replied, verse 16. I'll just read down through verse 24. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. See, there's that language again. He says, 
Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Okay, so real live dinner scene at the house of a Pharisee and Jesus is using the opportunity to heal somebody and to teach. He heals, he teaches on pride versus humility, and now he's going to talk about this great banquet because he's asked a question. And he talks about how in, this, in parable terms, there's this great banquet and there's this master of the house and he sends a servant out to invite certain guests. But unfortunately, the guests make excuses. There are people who will make excuses as to why they don't want to become a Christian, why they don't believe in God, why they don't want to receive Jesus. It's sad, but there are a lot of excuses out there. Not now, you know, maybe later, I don't want to, and on all this kind of stuff. It's tragic. And Jesus in the parable says that the master said to a servant, well, I want you to go out now and I want you to go instead of the invited guests. They don't want to come. Okay. But I want you to go out and I want you to invite the crippled, the blind, the poor, the lame. Go get them. And in the parable, the servant says, I've done that. There's still room. And then the master told his servant, you go out the country lanes, byways, highways everywhere, and you compel as many people to come in. Again, this is a picture of heaven, ultimately. And God, the heart of God is go after everybody and anybody. And we as Christians have a wonderful opportunity and a mandate and responsibility to make him known wherever we go, whatever we do, to help people find the truth of Jesus Christ because there's a great banquet and we don't want them to miss it. And we won't be winners of souls until we're first weepers of souls. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. We have to weep for the lost. We have to have a heart for people who don't know Jesus. And then we have to be used by him in whatever way, in whatever opportunity to help people understand there's a great eternity that awaits them and a loving father who has a banquet table set. But we are the lame and the crippled. We are the blind. We are the poor. This is us. And God has made a way for us to come and feast with him for all eternity. You guys remember a couple of weekends ago when we were making our way through 2 Samuel and I was teaching on, uh, we came to the passage about Mephibosheth. Remember him? The son of Jonathan and David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. The Bible says that Mephibosheth was crippled in both feet. And we talked about the parallel of that story that Mephibosheth was actually a picture of you and me. And David is a picture, a type of, if you will, Christ. And that's why Jesus even is referred to as the son of David in the Gospels, uh, because he is a descendant of David. Well, after I taught that weekend, that sermon, I got a wonderful email, and I actually emailed um, this lady today and asked if I could have permission to share her email. And she says, yes, please do. And I, I just felt like this is a wonderful thing that some of you needed to hear, because just in light of that story with Mephibosheth and being crippled in both feet. And here we come to this parable of the great banquet. It talks about the poor, the blind, the lame, and the crippled. And it's really descriptive of us. I want you to hear, it's not very long, but this is what she wrote to me a couple of weeks ago. Dear Pastor Gary, I've been wanting to write to you and let you know how meaningful your sermon was to me when I visited your church a couple of weeks ago. My husband and I live in Vermont, but we were down visiting his brother and their children. We had the pleasure of being in your congregation that day. You spoke about David's kindness towards Mephibosheth. The phrase that was emphasized over and over was, and he was crippled in both feet. You read it a couple of times, and you said it a couple of times. It struck me because I am crippled in both feet. 
And yet, I eat at the king's table. I have to admit I was feeling a bit defeated that day. I walk with the use of leg braces and a cane. I have a genetic form of muscular dystrophy, which first became apparent at age 16. Each year, it gets just a tiny bit worse. And now at age 49, I am facing new challenges as stairs become impossible and daily tasks can be very frustrating. Going to a new place, like your church, for example, I am always glad to have my sweet husband along because I never know if I'll have to face some stairs or a steep slope or just get jostled in the crowd. So I was feeling very self-conscious that day and weary over my situation. But I eat at the king's table. This was whispered to my heart, even before you said it aloud in your sermon. As soon as you finished telling the story, I could hear God gently speak it. This is you. You eat at my table. And it's true. God has provided an amazing family for me. Husband, son, daughter, and extended family. I have a beautiful home and garden that I love to work in. And I have a very fulfilling ministry as pianist and leader of the worship team at our church. My husband and I host a Bible study in our home every Wednesday night. We have so many fantastic Christian friends that would be there for me in a heartbeat. I have 20 adorable piano students that come to my home every week, one by one, and I get to watch their little fingers play. I could go on and on with how God has blessed me, but that's not really the point. Eating at the king's table isn't really about that. It's eating with the king himself. And this is what struck me that I get to have such a beautiful friendship with my Savior, that he would choose me, crippled in both feet, to be his companion. Thank you for reminding me of that. And God bless you and your beautiful church. Isn't that beautiful? And I asked her if I could read this, because I thought, you know, here she physically relates to this story, but, you know, all of us need to understand that this story is descriptive of all of us. We are the poor in spirit. We have been crippled with sin. We are lame in need of healing because we're all dying of the same disorder, and it's called sin. And Jesus made a way through the cross so that we might have relationship with him and be able to feast at the table with the king of the universe forever and ever. Jesus says there's a great banquet. You need to come. And you need to invite as many people as possible to come with you. Because that's the glorious truth of eternity. Well, reading on verse 25, it says that the large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, this is kind of harsh, but it's true. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's harsh. He uses the word hate. It is the Greek word meseo. I kept looking up in Strong's Concordance how many different ways can meseo be translated. Every single time meseo is translated in the New Testament, it translates hate. Now, it has a meaning of not just hate by itself, but in the context, it's hate in a comparative sense, not a literal sense. Jesus is not saying, if you really want to be his disciples, you need to just go hate your family's guts. And tell them to. Just tell them you hate them and that you love Jesus now. No, that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, in a comparative sense, our love for Jesus should be so great that nothing and no one else compares. 
Our love for him should be so great that no other personal relationship and no other tangible or intangible thing should be loved as much as Jesus. Now, again, he's not saying this literally. He's saying it comparatively because the same thing is true with the next verse. Verse 27, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. He's not saying literally, if you want to be his disciple, go out and go get yourself a big rugged cross and go carry it to work and to the grocery store and wherever you go. I mean, what he's saying here again is we need to learn to die to self, that being a disciple of Christ involves some dying to self. And that can be in different ways, right? Dying to self can be tangible and it can be intangible. The intangible ways we die to self, you know what? When you live for Christ, you might just have to give up your swagger. You know what I'm talking about? Some people don't really want other people to know that they live for Christ because they don't want to lose the cool factor. They're too afraid that somebody's going to what? Make fun of them. And they won't be as cool. They won't be as liked or admired. Because when they find out you're really a Christian... They might actually make fun of you. There's some intangible things we have to realize. Hey, you become a Christian, you know, you're going to give up some of that stuff. But there's also some tangible things, perhaps, too, that we give up when we become a Christian. There's some friends that, when you get saved, you need to lose. I mean, if you really want to be gut honest about what it, and you assess your life, and you go, okay, I, I'm, I want to be a Christian now, so i got to assess my life. Where are some of the things I'm going? Who are some of the people I'm hanging out with? What are some of the things I'm watching? And you need to take inventory of those things, and you need to realize that sometimes living for Christ means that there's a cost, and you're going to give up some things, because it's not helpful to you. It's not productive. It's not fruitful. It's not bringing you closer to Jesus. It's taking you further away. There's some friends you need to lose, some new friends you need to gain. There's some places you don't need to go anymore. For some of you, it might even be you need to quit your job because where you are, it's not a good godly environment enough. It pays the bills, but yet God will provide for you somewhere else because the environment is simply causing you to spiral further and further out of control. And sometimes God even calls us and wants you to give that up. I heard a funny story talking about giving up jobs. A friend of mine who pastors in Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia, a huge church up in Philly, he was talking about, I heard him talk about how that there was a guy in his church who brought his 78-year-old mother to church. And she got saved, gloriously saved. Never heard of the gospel, got saved. And he was driving her back to the home. She actually lived in a nursing home. Or it was more of a retirement home, kind of assisted living. And he's taking her back to where she lived. And he says, well, Mom, you got saved today. Yeah, I got saved. And he says, it's it's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. And she says to him, I'm not making this up. She goes, I'm going to have to give up my job now. He says, what do you mean you have to give up your job? Mom, I didn't know you had a job. You're 78 years old. You've been living in a nursing home for a couple of years now. She goes, well, I didn't want to tell you, but some of my girlfriends at the nursing home, we started uh, being these operators on the other end of these sex lines. (laughs) And men would call and we'd just talk to them about, you know, sexual stuff. And this guy's like freaking out. He's like almost wrecking the car. He's like, Mom, you what in the world? And she goes, yeah, I'm sorry, son. Didn't want to admit it, but I guess I'll have to give up my job. Yeah. (laughs) Now, I love that story because it's a wonderful story about a 78-year-old lady who got saved. But I also love to share that story for those of you men (laughs) who think if you call those lines, you're getting a PYT on the other end. Pretty young thing. Maybe not. Just remember the grandma story, all right? Remember the grandma story. 
There's a cost. <laughs> Some of you have a bad image in your head now. The point of all that, there's a cost. And sometimes you might have to give some stuff up to really be a follower of his. Now, verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, you know, does he want us to just kind of live a life of a monk and just, you know, give up everything in that sense? Well, I mean, you know, for some people, maybe it will be dramatic. Maybe God will call some people to give up a lot and uh, others he, he calls to give up in moderation. But you know what Jesus is saying here? Again, the context is this. Give up everything that is in your way. There's nothing more important than knowing the Lord. And if there's anything standing in the way between you and the Lord, give it up. That's really the the meaning of what he's saying here. If there's anything between you and the Lord, give it up. We don't live for the temporal. You know, we live for the eternal. But unfortunately, there are a lot of temporal things that are robbing us of eternal rewards. We're selling our souls for stuff that is of this earth. And instead of living for the things that are of eternity. So don't let anything and anyone stand in the way between you and living for the Lord. And a lot of times people read this passage and they think to themselves, you know, what, what, let me calculate the cost to follow Jesus. You know, what does it mean? What do I have to give up? What do I have to give up? What do I have to give up? And that is part of it. But there's another angle to what he's saying here, I think, and it's this. You also need to consider the cost if you don't. If you don't follow him, because there's a severe price to be paid. There's eternal consequences and separation from him. So count the cost, but at both sides. What's it going to cost me to follow Jesus? And what's it going to cost me if I don't? Because there's eternity that hangs in the balance because of that. Verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. And so the value of salt in those days, it was a preservative. It was also an antiseptic. And it flavored. You know, it, it penetrated the meat or whatever you salted, and it gave flavor. It also was a preservative. And even today, you cure, you know, meat, you can, with salt. And it's also an antiseptic. You put it in a wound, and it helps for healing. That's the way that we should be as Christians. We should have all of those effects in our world. We should season and flavor the world with the good news of Christ. We should be this preserving element in our world uh, where, you know, the grace of the Lord is upon us because of the church that continues to represent him, that preserving element. And we should be an, an astringent. We should be something that helps as an antiseptic to be a pure, have a purifying effect in our world. And basically what he says here, salt is only useful if it has the nature of salt. And a Christian is only useful if he or she has the nature of Christ. He who has ears, let him hear. 
The Gospel of Luke takes a unique look at the life of Christ, from His birth to His ministry, His death and resurrection. Luke described Jesus as the Son of Man, one of his favorite ways to refer to Himself. Jesus was God in human form, showing all of us what it means to live a completely sinless life. There was no fault to be found in Him, yet Jesus was still nailed to a cross. But His death had purpose too. He stood in for you, taking the punishment your sin deserves. And then he rose from the grave, conquering death and the evil one. What an amazing Savior this Son of Man truly is. Are you interested in knowing more about Jesus, or would you like someone to pray with you? If so, please email us at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to come join us this Sunday for a time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship at Cornerstone Chapel. Find out service times and more information when you visit our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You'll also find previous messages from Pastor Gary and be able to download our mobile app. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in to Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know